Welcome to an episode of No Challenges Remaining, episode 92. I'm Ben Rothenberg, joined once again by Courtney Nguyen. Hi, Courtney. Hello, Ben. How are you? I'm doing well. Happy early Thanksgiving. Happy, happy early Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving to you. Happy Gobble Gobble Day. Yeah, like, I don't know. I, I know you've been obviously traveling quite a bit, but I am just feeling pretty good of having a week of sleep and relaxation-ish and all that sort of stuff. Rejuvenated. Ready to hit the practice courts once again? Just kidding. Think, yeah, oh, no, practice courts. That sounds terrible. Uh, for all the for all the times where we get to complain about you know our travel schedules or whatever compared to the players, like oh it's the same. We travel all the time. We're there, you know, first ball to last ball. Like we do get an off season, and when we are off the clock, we can do horribly destructive things to ourselves if we choose. So that's great. Yeah, and we don't have to worry about you know really staying in playing shape. True, true. Although, you know, not true. <laughs> I mean, like, you know, it's not like we stop writing. No, that's true. The off season's over. I mean, we that's still true. continue to do our jobs and if anything, continue for the most part at the same pace as we do, before, at least for me, uh, that I do during the regular season. So I'm not willing to completely buy into the whole like, oh, I'm on vacation for a month. Fun either but way. It is fun either way. It's fun to stay in one place, at least. Yes. For if you choose to do so, which is not really an option the rest of the time. On this show, we're going to delve into all sorts of off-season goodness and start carving into the massive turkey that was the year in tennis 2014. That sounds cruel. I guess maybe this year was a turkey on some level. Well, that's going to be the topic of discussion over the next three weeks, I'm sure. I don't, I don't know if it was a turkey. I'm still, I'm still, the turkey, I'm still working it all out in my head. And, okay. and for the record, I love turkey, so I don't even Turkey's really great. understand why the whole turkey thing is a negative. Turkey's amazing. Turkey's good. Turkey also means three strikes in a row in bowling, which is great. That's awesome. That's really good. Who doesn't want a what? turkey when they're bowling? I know. I once... Uh, do you ever play Wii Bowling? No. Oh, Wii Bowling was so good. Oh, on the I, Nintendo Wii. On Nintendo Wii, I thought, yeah. I thought you meant W-E-E bowling, like oh. like, <laughs> like bumper lane bowling or whatever, and I'm like, no, Ben, I don't... I don't. No, that would be... That'd be weird. I don't go to the bowling lanes on the weekends and play with 10-year-olds on anyway, the bumper lanes, but whatever. Oh, well, I think you probably should. But anyway, Jeez. on Wii Bowling one time, on Wii Sports Bowling, Nintendo Wii to make it very clear, I once bowled a 299, which meant I bowled 12 straight strikes and then got a 9 on my very last one. Oh, the heartbreak. I can still I can still feel it. I'm like, oh, so much secondhand embarrassment that you're telling this with such pride. It's true, though. This was like, it would have been a really cool thing to be able to be like, hey, my name's Ben at a cocktail party. How are you? What's you? What do you do? Oh, nothing much. Well, that one time a few years ago, I bowled a 300 Wii Bowling. Like that, come on. That is a deal closer of a conversation starter. That's amazing. No? No. Not working for you? No, right. because it involves the word we. I don't know. I think it's pretty cool. Hopefully our listeners agree. Yeah, let's move on from that quickly. On the show, we're going to talk about the last remnants of the turkey scraps or the season, which naming, namely is the Davis Cup final. And we're going to take a bunch of questions from you guys. So ready to get to it, Courtney? I am. All right, let's do this. So the Davis Cup final was this past weekend, the most highly anticipated Davis Cup final we've had in quite a while. 
in Lille, France, in a 27,000-seat arena, which is a converted indoor soccer stadium. Switzerland beat the French 3-1. Courtney, what's your biggest takeaway from how it all played out? I just, to me, I ju- it just really felt like a I couldn't, I couldn't, it was difficult for me to focus on anything except the French implosion. And that's not to say that, like, if France had delivered, they would have won. None of us knew that, like, Roger would come out and play as well as he did. Um, Stan was also fantastic, especially on day one and day two in the doubles specifically. But I expected the French to show up and to, to make this a really competitive tie that, to hopefully see it come down to at least, you know, a lengthy fourth rubber or a decisive fifth rubber. And it's it's a weird situation we find ourselves in when Gael Montfils was the clutch player. He was so good. So good. So, he has so no good. regrets at all. None yeah. whatsoever. And yeah, so I'm just really surprised by just how it all went down with the French with respect to, you know, Songo really being completely outplayed by Vavrinka, which no surprise necessarily there, um, given their respective forms at the time. But then just what happened after that uh, with whichever story you choose to believe, whether Songa ruled himself out because he did, couldn't deal with the pressure of the tie or he had an, a significant arm injury that didn't allow him to take the court either way um to throw richard gasquet under the bus is brutal i don't know i just it just i was really disappointed in france and in the way that they handled this tie and i think that a lot of that does come down to arnaud clement i think that the captain does have you know a lot to say with respect to the psyche of their players and managing the personalities and getting everybody together and at the end of the day the swiss were like a well like they were a team a two-man team but a team whereas the french just seemed really really uninspired and a bit scattered and that was really disappointing I'm surprised you didn't use some sort of Swiss analogy, like calling them like a a well-timed clock or something. I really was waiting for that. Okay. No, I completely agree. And I think that putting Gasquet on the team, period, was questionable. Like, what situation was Gasquet going to be your guy on this weekend? Just none. He was never going to beat either Federer Vavrinka in singles, and he's not a great doubles player. Yeah, I totally agree. Totally quizzical. What's the team you would have put together if if you were Clement for France? Because there were two ways... That you could go? There are two ways to go that neither of them involve Gasquet, I think. Right, yeah. One of them is you put Benito Roger Vasselin as, like, a dedicated doubles team. Or the other one, for me, is you put Gilles Simone in the fourth spot. I guess you keep Benito either way. Benito as a doubles-only guy works for me. Yep. And even as, like, an emergency singles player, I mean, weirder things have happened. He's beaten Roger before. It wouldn't be the most ridiculous thing. Yeah. Gilles Simone, I thought, would be a much better choice. And also, the clay doesn't make any sense to me either. Because yep. all the all the Swiss guys can play on clay, but if you put something really fast, like a really fast indoor hardcore, that throws off Ravrinka. Yep. So yeah, none of it made sense to me, and especially for putting it on clay and then not putting Benito Roger Vasselin as your doubles team when they won the French Open this year. Come on, it, come on, Arno. Arno, just what were you thinking? It just yeah. it, it did not make sense, and I know that you know we. And again, this isn't to say that any of these changes would have necessarily changed the result. Yeah. Because I think Switzerland really did play well. And, and they're when, a better team. They're a better team. Those two guys, just even just in singles, just they were going to get their three points with the way that they played. But it just was an uninspiring tie, I mean, really, for me, over the course of it. Um, and, and it could have been so much better. And given how hyped it was and how anticipated that the tie was, it just really kind of fell, fell flat. And I agree with you. I think that 
that the decision to put it on clay was just I, I get it, but at the same time, you know, oh, we're French, we play on clay, our slam is on clay, but your guys aren't great on it. I mean, that's not their surface. I think no, not at all. Four of the five titles that Malfis has won have come on indoor courts, indoor hard courts. Four of his five titles. That's yeah. like you know, not a statistical anomaly at that point. Sangha, all of his titles have come on either indoor or outdoor courts. Indoor, indoor, outdoor, hard, I think. Right. right. Either all 11 or 10 of 11. I can't remember specifically. And then, you know, Stan, most of his titles have come on clay. And Roger, as much as he sucks on the surface, won your freaking tournament. So and it's, also, it's also relative Federer sucking. Exactly, exactly. It's like yeah. I, it's like I wrote. It's it's saying Federer sucks on clay is like saying Pablo Honey is Radiohead's worst surface or worst uh, worst album. It's still better than most of anything that's out there. So it doesn't make sense. So it just was seemed like a mismanaged tie throughout from the the get go. And then on top of that, it just reeked of kind of French stubbornness. Like it was, you know, they could have gone with an indoor fast court, but no, we're gonna play on clay because that's that's who we are as a people. Without it was just, you know, I think, or, it was, I think it was I think it was less that and more that they thought that it would really disrupt the Swiss and they just didn't think through what they do to themselves. Yeah, so I understand that like theoretically from the the surface side, but then putting Gasquet on the team. It was like, well, he's he's really performed well this year at Davis Cup. He's also dropped outside of the top 25. He didn't win back-to-back matches since the U.S. Open. He's not playing well. Right. Whereas Simone made the Shanghai final. Made the Shanghai final. And Simone has a game that at least he can, whoever he's going to play, he can make them run around at least for three hours. He can prolong Mm -hmm. it. He can rally. He can force those guys to hit shots. I mean, you know, at least then you, you have the other side of it, which is okay, we took a, a loss in the singles or a loss in the doubles, but at least we made those guys work for it. These were cl- quick wins and losses throughout yeah. the entire weekend. Even when okay. Roger lost, it was too fast. That was that was kind of my big takeaway. I was disappointed in the French. Obviously, I understand that it was massive for Switzerland. And Roger finally gets Davis Cup. Stan is really, to me, the, the as Roger said, the MVP of, of the entire team. Um, just keeping them in the world group in a lot of ways and really performing well um over the weekend but man france i really was expecting more from you <laughs> a little bit of a tyra situation oh i tweeted the whole thing with the tyra with the tyra youtube clip so that's how i felt about it i believe in them i thought that they could at least you know show up and with the put forth a, a respectful performance but it it was it was sad here's what i think we've learned over the times we've been in tennis for the past uh however many decades of following the sport don't get your hopes up about French men's tennis. Just don't. Yeah, maybe, I guess. Maybe maybe never a strong play. But there was a part of me that really thought, okay, these guys are never going to win slams. Yeah. But, like, together, they are talented enough to win a Davis Cup. And maybe, arguably, against anyone other than the Swiss, they would have won. That's very fair. Right? I mean, bad, yeah. bad, you know, whatever, quote unquote, bad luck on the draw, et cetera, et cetera. But, yeah, it was, uh, it was definitely disappointing. Indeed. Let's talk a little bit about the relevance of this to Roger's career and I guess and also I guess relevance of it to the sport as a whole right now. Does this I think Doug Robson wrote an article about this and was asking a bunch of players about it in London. Should him winning the Davis Cup, which is something he had failed to win or failed to even really come that close to winning over the course of his otherwise illustrious career, is this at all a legacy changer or even significant augmenter? for roger or is he pretty much 
the same after this. Nope. It doesn't change anything. It is a it is a snowflake on top of Everest, like in the dead of winter. It doesn't matter. He he never needed to prove anything. He never if at the end of Roger Federer's career, everybody wanted to like insert that line at the end of the opening paragraph that recaps all of his career highlights and say, "Oh, but he never won Davis Cup." You are reaching. You are just trying to like poke a hole in something where that doesn't exist. I mean, his resume is flawless. Um, you know, well, I mean, to the extent that there are any, you know, criticisms of his legacy, you know, with in the goat conversation or whatever like that. They're not Davis Cup. No, they're really they are completely separate issues. They are definitely not Davis Cup. They I have think they're more... pretty much all about Rafa. Yeah, exactly. It's more about Rafa and the whole argument of of can you be the greatest player uh, of all time if you weren't the greatest player in your era? Fair yeah. enough. Or if you got and you got completely owned by somebody else in the conversation. Right. Exactly. Yeah. So that is a far more compelling critique than freaking Davis Cup. Sorry, that's how what I think. What about you, Ben? I completely agree. And I think it goes a lot to the relevance of Davis Cup in the sport as a whole. I mean, team sport is funny seeing uh, one of the things I really like about tennis is that you kind of have to you eat everything only that you kill. And there's nothing you don't get gifted into anything. And Davis Cup is kind of the exception because right now, with all due respect to these lovely people, I'm sure Marco Cunelli and Michael Lammer walked away as Davis Cup champions here. I mean, which you see in almost every other sport. You see Ben Chormers winning titles and getting everything. Um, but a lot of it has to do with luck. And Roger only dedicated himself to Davis Cup once Stan made a real push into being a relevant top player. Before that, he completely ignored the or largely ignored the competition, knowing he couldn't win it. And, and so it's not like Federer was toiling away for 15 years every year trying to win it. No, that's not what happened at all. He, yeah. he cherry-picked when he had a, a chance. And worked out well for him. And it, and it should be said that Federer kind of decided to commit in the year that both Novak and Rafa were like, nah. Yeah. So that, you know, there is something there. You know, it could have been a little interesting had Britain not uh, completely choked against Italy. And it would have been then a, a Swiss GB tie. But even then, you, you have to think that the, the Swiss had a upper hand. But Where would, that would have been in the UK, right? Yeah, I think it would have been oh, in the wow. UK. So that was a massive, massive blow to the year. But um, and then, you know, I think at the beginning of the year, you and I were so excited about the, when the draw said Switzerland, Serbia, first round, and then Novak ended up not playing. Yeah. So that obviously gave the Swiss. But anyways, the it's hard to ignore the fact that this was not the strongest year of Davis Cup. And none of them have been lately. I mean, really, you see the kind of finals we've had, the Czech Republic winning the previous two years. Like, there's nothing, like, with all due respect to Burdich and Stepanek, nobody thinks of, like, Czech greatness as being synonymous with men's tennis right now. The competition right now awards attendance more than anything. And, And, yeah, yeah. And, and when Thomas Burdick retires... And let's assume that his career continues the way that it is. It's not like people are going to be putting Davis Cup champ, the two-time Davis Cup champion, into his bio because hey, let's celebrate this amazing thing that Thomas Burdick did. It's kind of reaching for something to kind of bolster. I mean, what he'll be known for is he was a top ten player for X number of years. He was for quite a while, yeah, yeah, career high number whatever five five mm-hmm. five, yeah. um, five um blah 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 titles oh and by the way he was wimbledon a two- final wimbledon yeah. final oh and by the way he was a two-time davis cup champion that's just the hierarchy of tennis yeah and, and it, so, it has to be that way because of the 
reality of how this uh, thing is played out. I mean, you see these teams, like Italy made the Davis Cup semis this year. They're not a great team at all. A few years ago, I think Israel made the semis, and they were a completely irrelevant Davis Cup country, even though it was a cool underdog story when they did it, obviously. Um, Kazakhstan. Spain, Kazakhstan is a, it keeps hanging around the world group, being complete cockroaches, even without any relevant... Maybe they have top 50 now, but for a while they didn't have any top 100 players, and they were staying in a world group. And um, in Spain, most, most damningly of all, I think Spain is not in the world group. They're not in this group of top 16. When they have the most players in the top 10, most in the top 20, most in top 50. I mean, what, what, what is this? So on that level, yeah, a Davis Cup is fun. I think it's really, really good locally. Like the French got really into it. L'Equipe had great uh, blanket coverage of Davis Cup all the way from pretty much the semis to all the way through the final nonstop. So people can get excited about it in regions. But does it have global relevance? No. It's not like the World Cup where even if your team loses, you still watch the final. I mean, I feel like a lot of people probably, if Federer hadn't been there, if it had been France versus Italy, let's say, which was the other semifinals it could have been, uh, no one would have felt that compelled to tune in. It's not must-see TV Davis Cup, which is sad because it can conjure some really cool emotions and atmospheres. Yeah, that's what's so frustrating about it, right? Because Davis Cup... Even if it's a random tie, just because of the nationalism and the team uh, team ethic of it, um, it's exciting. It doesn't matter who's playing. Yeah. It's just exciting. If you like tennis and you love competition, any given Davis Cup tie from world group to zonal, uh, and this applies to Fed Cup as well, is going to be exciting. It's because it's people are trying so freaking hard. And a lot of times you talk about players who this will be their career highlight, actually. You know, like if you're talking about a, a, top, a top 40 player, top 60 player, never going to win a major, like, you know, these wins are huge for them. Like a Burloke. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Um, hence all the shirt ripping. But, exactly. But yeah, you're never going to get a casual fan. That's just where Davis Cup is. I think that it's always a compelling competition when it rolls around. But at the same time, I don't, it doesn't hold any heft. I don't know. It's just kind of a fun thing that you get to watch a few times a year. Yeah. Would you like to see it go into a more World Cup-ish format where it was all held a much more condensed period of time, possibly all in one location? Yeah, I don't know. I I just have a hard... I mean, at the end of the day, it doesn't matter what format it's in or geographically how it's done. Or I mean, I do like the partisan nature of it. I like the whole like choice of surface and um, how do you pl- how do you play that and and you know what venue, et cetera, et cetera, and, and having these really hostile crowds sometimes. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's what helps to make Davis Cup special. But I think the the bottom line is if, if the top players are not playing, it's never going to be relevant. Yeah. And they have to all play at the same time. And we just haven't really had that, you know. That's true. I mean, it's like Nadal, Djokovic, and Federer took turns playing. Yeah, it's like they got into a room and we're like, all right, so you guys going to play like 2008, 2009, 2010? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're going to play, you know, it's it's a little, that's what it feels like sometimes. And it's a big reason why Fed Cup on the women's side does not work. Because the top players are all from countries that will never win Fed Cup. Like, Caroline cannot get delivered Denmark a Fed Cup title. Aga probably, well, actually, Aga could single-handedly, because she's a ninja, deliver a Fed Cup title to Poland. Poland's World Group next year, I think. Yeah, yeah, no, time. I think yeah. that's massive. I think it's massive. I think it's really good for Fed Cup. Well, no, and I, I mean, Sharapova could totally win a Fed Cup if she wanted to. She just doesn't, <laughs> does not deign to, to well, do it. 
Maria gonna Maria. Um, uh, same with Serena. Same Serena, with Serena. Serena was committed. USA could easily win it, uh, or at least be very competitive with the Czechs, with the with the champions. Yeah, exactly. But otherwise, you know, Romania, eh, maybe I don't know. But anyway, they could do it. That'd be an interesting dark horse team. Imagine, imagine. I wish it was. Imagine Nicolescu in, in like fifth rubber singles match. I know that they don't have fifth rubber in Davis Cup, but just imagine in Fed Cup. But just imagine. Like, all the competition comes down to Monica Nicolescu. How great would that be? Monica Nicolescu playing Canadian doubles <laughs> <laughs> in a decisive fifth doubles rubber. That'd be amazing. <laughs> Against the Italians. <laughs> part, of, part of me is so sad that I will never see that. Oh, what could have been? What could have been? One last thought on the Davis Cup. I put, after Roger won and talked about his legacy and whatever, I put out a tweet saying, uh, who had a better year, Novak or Roger, which, okay, we're not, we're not going to get into that now. I think we already talked about that pre-World Tour Finals. But a more interesting question, which was posed by our buddy Ricky Diamond, probably, is who had a better year, Roger or Stan? And, and going off of that, does Stan somehow deserve some sort of Dark Horse Player of the Year votes? Assess, assess Mr. Vavrinka, Courtney, as he looks back at this wild, wacky 2014. I mean, it's hard to argue that in terms of, like, most improved, there, there's a lot to be said that it should go to Stan, even though he was a top 10 player, obviously, last year. Um, but to win your first uh, uh, slam, uh, first mo- uh, Masters, and then Davis Cup, first Davis Cup, all in one year, that's, I mean... Hard to argue against that season now. The highs are very high. The highs are very high. He won a, So if you're going to compare the two Swiss, I think in a lot of ways you do kind of have to give, you know, the better year to Vavrinka in a lot of ways because dude won a slam. And if yeah. that's the world that we live in where we think that slams are kind of everything, which I'm not saying they are or they aren't, but I think in this situation, I think a lot of ways they are. And I know Roger obviously won a bunch of titles, two Masters, Stan only won the one. Yeah, Obviously, they both won Davis Cup, so that's technically tied. But I think that just with everything that kind of Stan mentally had to deal with this year, as much as it was easy at times in the season to kind of rip on him, and I know I definitely did, and called a lot of his performances embarrassing, which he, to be fair, did himself. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he said that he played shitty at times this year. I mean, he lost in Tokyo to Tatsuma Ito. This is a thing he did. Yeah, that happened. But when you go with just the highs, I mean, can we argue against Stan there? I don't think so. I mean, Novak obviously won four, four Masters, a slam, and World Tour Finals and finished number one. So, I mean, but obviously expectations were so much higher for Novak which is unfair grading on the curve. That's kind of how you have to do it when you're assessing quantities that are tennis players, I think. Yeah. Yeah. So expectations were different. Stan had a great year. And if he can solid uh, iron out the kinks next year and not do dumb things like lose first round of the French Open, which is his best surface and could be his best slam, then yeah, it could be... I think he could be a relevant top five guy for a couple more years. I think he totally has that in him. Who had the better year, Stan or Rafa? Ooh, Stan. You think so? I totally think so. I mean, I obviously, yes. Rafa really, Rafa o- Rafa only, really played, only yeah. had the French in terms of uh, the Australian Open obviously got unlucky um, a little bit yeah, with, the fun, with, the, with the being hurt. But other than that, the rest of his year, Madrid, he got really lucky against Nisha Corey getting hurt in the final. That was his one Masters, I think, he won this year. Only one. Whoa. And, okay, yeah, you're right. Fair enough. And uh, yeah, so I think Stan had a better year than, than Rafa. Fair enough. So we'll go with that. Yep. 
one we got a lot of questions from you guys from the for the offseason which is awesome keep them coming we'll need them uh one davis cup related question we got from nicole Desplat, who asked us if davis cup were played like high school tennis where players couldn't play more than one match what country would prevail? She says Switzerland obviously was able to win on the strength of two top 10 players, but with no one else in the top 500, I think they'd struggle to win. And that's true. Uh, Switzerland did win being only a two-person team. And so uh, my vote for this, I should think I said earlier, is Spain. If, if like high school, attendance was mandatory in Davis Cup, <laughs> I, I think that Spain just has so much depth, and they are still the premier tennis country in the world, regardless yeah. of their relegation <laughs> yeah exactly no i i totally agree with you with i mean it, it would the final would effectively be what spain france yeah spain france totally. spain france and as we just discussed at length the french have an issue of even kind of just showing up uh but if they were put if they were to put that on a really incredibly fast indoor hard court i would be very very interested to see how yeah. that would actually play out although spain has feliciano Anyways, but yeah, depending on, depending on what high school format you play, because there's a bunch that vary by right. states in terms of six singles, three doubles, whatever. USA would actually do much better in this format because we have a lot of guys in the top hundred yeah. compared to a lot of countries, even though we don't have a lot of strength at the top right now. Argentina would be, do pretty decently or better than or about the same, I guess, as they do right now. The Czechs would be terrible. Canada they don't would have be any terrible. depth at all. Japan Canada wouldn't would be suck. any good. Japan wouldn't be any good. Australia would be good because they have a good amount of depth in the middle they have a lot of guys ranked right around 50 right now but those uh, guys can't beat i mean because you have don't you end up shifting or do you go by like you go in high school you go by brackets stacking no you go uh there's like you make a ladder on your team so your best plays their best it's like right that's what i one mean place, one, two plays two, three so plays how three. would australia i'm saying like the aussie three let's say is like matasevic or something might be a lot better than like the Czech three, who is like oh, young fair enough. Or something. Okay, okay. Anyway, so yeah, so it'd be interesting to see different formats. I think it'd be cool if there were more different national competitions or some alternate format, like the WTA is proposing. I would just be curious to see different rules because this this format is very I don't know, it feels kind of stale to me. Yeah, the peak Serbian team would have done well. They would have done really well. Yeah, because yeah. they had also had Zimanić playing mm-hmm. doubles and stuff. Cool. Yeah. So, interesting thought. If you disagree, let us know. Yeah, please. As always, tell us what you think. We're here. We we talk constantly, but we're also trying to listen occasionally. <laughs> so one of the fun storylines about Davis Cup, which I'm really proud of us for not mentioning yet, was the apparent beef between the Swiss team triangle of Roger Federer, Stan Wawrinka, and... Mirka Federer, which was sort of unconfirmed when we talked about it last time on the show, and then got confirmed pretty quickly, weirdly by Cedric Morier, the chair empire, and then by uh, the players themselves acknowledged it, but said it was all behind them. And there was an article, a column by the Telegraph writer Simon Briggs of England, who was talking about how this blast from the past showed how sterile tennis is now and how relatively... I guess, under wraps a lot of the drama and the seediness of the sport is now in this pretty cleaned up, streamlined, corporatized era of sport. So we'll start, we're going to get to another column first, but why don't we start with this one first, Courtney, what are your thoughts on how, what that incident revealed about the sport now and Briggs's thoughts on what it says about the sort of 
underbelly of the sport, I guess. Yeah, I mean, if you, can call, if you can call it an underbelly, I'm not sure that's the right term for America Gate, but yeah, no, America Gate definitely isn't. Um, I mean, I think that Simon did hit it right on the the head that you know we were having this complete like drama filled discussion about a player's wife calling another player a crybaby. Like that is just not something that would even register really in a lot of ways. I mean, the the incident that I seemingly kind of um analogize in my head was I, I can't remember was it's the super bowl with giselle with giselle yes i was thinking the same thing oh yeah. wow there you go mind melt when she said when giselle bunchen who is I'm, i hope we're thinking the same quote when giselle bunchen who's tom brady's wife course quarterback for the patriots uh, she's obviously a supermodel herself and she said after they lost i think she said like well he can't throw and catch the ball himself Exactly. Yeah, something along the line. line. It's such a good line because basically the receivers were having a terrible day that day. But yeah, it was something kind of like that where, you know, a a significant other kind of speaks out of turn in a way. And yeah, that was like funny, haha, but like no one really took it all that seriously. Whereas this one, it just felt like we were, we have been starved. And I think Ben, you and I discuss this all the time on this podcast about how we wish that it was a little bit more rowdy, uh, spe- specifically on the ATP side, um, that that this air of ambassadorship that the, the top guys seem to put on would just disappear. And these guys would just be the players that or the people that they actually are and feel free and not have to worry about sponsorships and, you know, all these sorts of corporatized reasons of why you try to lock down all of the negativity and put on this veneer of just like, I'm good. I'm perfect. I'm great. Um, so yeah, I, I thought that it was, it was a piece that needed to be written. And I thought it was, it was really well done by Simon. I think that at least there's a very happy medium between what we have now and what we used to have in the seventies when there was, you know, Jimmy Connors being essentially acting like a hemorrhoid on the sport. Yeah. You you shouldn't be having players calling people abortions. Let's just go ahead and put that into the rule book. So I'm not, I'm not, yearning for a return to that i don't want people to be complete unlikable assholes on court well we have that right now with bonini we do and it's enough (laughs) it really is enough we don't need more well maybe if he was a little more like articulate with it because i think he could i think he could be i don't know could be better but yeah i agree that there is room for more personality and you know less more honesty in the sport in terms of emotional especially with the guys the women are a little better at it or at least they have they crack more um and let let their true (laughs) feelings on on subjects known more yeah i think that's totally fair and the other thing that was interesting about simon's story just to segue into it was that he talked about sort of a little bit of the did he i think he did at least on twitter when he's talking about it about how the press he thinks has some role in not going into this is that fair assessment of what he said at least on twitter that's what he said that um, the way the sport has been covered has sort of been a, l- a little bit of lockstep with this genteel image. Hasn't been really trying to get a, uh, under the skin of the sport. And that goes to what John Wertheim said about the doping, if you want to sum that part up or if disagree with that segue. Um, well, I think that... <clears throat> I think that I I would say yes and no in response to kind of what Simon was saying. I think that in ways, I think that kind of the small trivial blow up things um, like a Mirka Gate 
Um, generally, the press does kind of stay, the tennis press kind of does stay away from a little bit, simply because there is kind of this air of like, it's so stupid, I'm not going to write about it. Like, you know what I mean? Like, it's so trivial, like, who gives a shit? Like, that sort of thing, like, you know, where we want to talk about the sport. Uh, we, we like there are writers who got into write, covering the sport because they want to talk about what happens between the lines, and that is forehands and backhands and head to heads and statistics and you know psychology and all these sorts of things. And who cares if somebody called somebody some a name, you know, off the court? Like you know, no. so I think that there is I wouldn't say complicitness or whatever, but like I think there is a little bit of that. I think I, I talked to a writer on the night Mirkagate happened when there was still a lot of, you know, whispers completely and no one confirmed anything on the Swiss side of things. And uh, he said, basically, like, I can't write this right now because if I ever want to talk to anyone in either of their camps ever again. Right. Essentially, of course. You could, be, you could be wrong. So there's obviously a lot of restraint and a lot of for the better journalists, I think at least it can be said, or the better newspapers are cautious sometimes usually not to a fault but maybe occasionally to a fault sure and it's just the way sort of the profession has to work right unfortunately uh, yeah that's probably true and and that's definitely a lot of the back kind of room dealing that happens i think on a daily basis i know that like it happens for you i know it happens for me where you're talking to agents players like tours tournaments whoever tv people whoever's in the business and you get bits and pieces of information and you have to make sit there and figure out can i run with this can i not run with this what are the repercussions if i do you know all this sorts of of stuff so there is that aspect of it now i do genuinely believe though that with respect to the media that only really applies to that stuff like the trivial like like simon yeah gossip stuff stuff. exactly like simon references you know like here's i can read this quote sure yeah basically it's like if simon says we can find further ironies here the first is that the truth of tennis is nothing like the genteel image any insider will tell you this is a sport of bitter struggle and financial hardship on the outside courts a sport where isolated convictions for doping and match fixing are only the tip of the sinister iceberg a sport of unprintable nocturnal adventure not un, sorry, unprintable nocturnal adventures that could turn your hair white, especially if you are the parent of a promising junior. Yeah, and so I think those sort of the last thing, the nocturnal adventures, <laughs> which is an interesting term for it that I like. I kind of love it. Is, yeah, is a that we don't really talk about. I mean, we're not on this show talking about who we saw with who and we're not hotel, tennis hotel TMC. lobbies or whatever. No, we're really not. You know, it'd be fun. It'd be hilarious. But. No, we're not that. But I, yeah, so I think that it like with respect to that sort of stuff, I think that we do kind of are like, you know what, that's just not really what I'm going to be dabbling in. You know, yeah. like that's not how I want to craft myself. Like that, it doesn't have anything to do with if it affects what's going on on court, then right. that's a different thing. But whatever somebody does is what they do. Yeah, like I remember with uh, during Wimbledon last year when the whole Serena Maria blow up happened, like then we acknowledged the past between like Serena and Grigor. Right. But we hadn't ever, even though we knew about that for quite a while, we'd never thought it was at all worth sharing. Right. It's just, I don't know, it's just titillation for titillation's sake, which is kind of, I don't know, as much as it sounds like we're gossip nerds, we're, I don't think that we really are. At least not publicly. No, at least not publicly. Oh my gosh, like private phone calls. <laughs> it's hilarious. But yeah, so there's that aspect of it. Uh, I do think that the media does kind of like keep that stuff out of the front pages of kind of the major outlets just because it's just pointless but 
when it comes to segueing now into John Wertheim's recent mailbag with respect to doping, and um, basically he kind of uh, dedicated an entire mailbag last week to the issue of doping in tennis. How big is it? How rampant of it? Uh, how rampant is it in the sport? And why isn't it as you know, reported? Is it because there's some sort of sinister agreement between tours and players and media to keep it all under wraps, that sort of thing. And I think that with respect to doping, I don't think people are trying to keep things under wraps. I think that people are working incredibly hard to try and figure out what the situation is because you hear, because as John writes, you hear things and players have their suspicions. Coaches have their suspicions. Everybody has some tidbit of information that they want to tell you, but you can't just like, you know, stand on a street corner, aka Twitter, and be like, hey, heard this. <laughs> like, that's just not an option. Or boy, that person looks pretty juicy today, don't they? Right. Yeah. Like, look at you those can't... muscles. Like, that, that, or... that's not natural. Yeah. You know, you can't, you can't do it. No, there's, there, you really can't. And that's, doping is a lot tougher than obviously, in terms of getting information that's reliable than the nocturnal adventure side. Because, oh, things, so which is, much which, information on that side. It's <laughs> just overwhelming <laughs> with data. Uh, and some of it's pretty gross. Um, I mean, you'd agree with that. I'd agree with that. <laughs> yeah, the doping thing, obviously, people are not willing to do. And it's tough because we definitely have these conversations. We say, you know, obviously, off record in private, who do you think? I think this person's doping. I think this person very well could be. I don't know. Hear this or that. But the level of the threshold of accuracy and confidence you have to have to say anything like that publicly is is huge and in terms of unless there's a leak happening with someone inside a camp which is usually like what happened to bring down lance armstrong whatever it's it's just tough to really get anything even remotely definitive out of these players and right now sadly or not sad i mean hope hopefully there's nothing involved but i think it's naive to think there is nothing sadly that none of the information if there is any is getting out right now and so until that happens uh, it's very hard to report anything except for very, very cautious speculation. Yeah. And to just chase, you know, to keep your ear on the ground and chase leads and and see what you can figure out um, and things like that. But I think on the whole, um, one of the things that I was thinking about when we were talking about the Briggs article before is just that it does take, I mean, for the health of the sport, in my opinion, um, from the media side, I think that it it is massively important for there to be kind of different segments of the media who have different interests, who have, I mean, everybody's covering the sport, but who, yeah, who have different kind of sets of connections and different agendas and different goals. And you're going to have that segment, which are the hardcore, like, reporters in but like the reporters who they need their rolodex they protect their rolodex they need their connections they're never going to burn their connections that makes those reporters know a ton of inside stuff but that also means that you know they have to kind of be careful about what they can write what they can't write in order to protect how they know those sorts of things there's going to be that there's going to be on the flip side you're going to have bloggers you know who are going to have the distance in a lot of ways, the lack of access. Yeah. Um, and if they have and are paying attention and are getting the right information, they can still write about things without worrying about burning bridges. But, that's much harder for them to get the same quality of information being yeah. in that distance. No, that's it totally true. And no, it's it's yeah. totally true. But I'm saying that like 
there is a way to kind of ma- like where I don't know. It would be nice. It would be good to see if like on the whole the the media landscape within tennis was a little bit healthier than it was because I don't think that there are en- there's enough of kind of like the 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 not the non access side of things where people are able to 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 write about it knowledgeably and I don't know like ask some of the questions that some of the people who who want to ask the questions can't ask the questions etc cetera, etc cetera. I don't know it's tough I'm just blabbering but yeah, blabbering is good that's what we're here for it's just a thought yeah so there you go so we'll keep you posted we'll keep our our shovels out and let you know if and when we hit anything it makes a clang. It's like a, that's like a sound you want from a shovel, right? You want to hit you definitely something. want a clang. Yeah, unless it like hurts your arm, you know? You mean shoveling and then it's like ow. Anyway, enough of that. Terrible, Please. terrible fade out to that segment by me right Terrible, there. just just the worst. So there's been a bit of coaching carousel news on the WTA side, especially this offseason, uh, since the WTA season wrapped up in Singapore with two of the players who were in Singapore parting with their coaches since then after breakthrough seasons. Uh, Wim Fissette, who was the coach of Simona Halep, is no longer the coach of Simona Halep. And Jeannie Bouchard had her coaching relationship longstanding with Nick Saviano and just recently, a couple days ago. Courtney, what are your thoughts, I guess, let's start just sort of zoom out a little bit to the concept of changing coaches after big success, especially for Simona, because that seemed to be more her decision, whereas Saviano was the one who put out the release on Genie, so that might have been more his decision um, for how it was framed. And if that's ever a good idea, or if it's always a bad idea, and what those two need in the future to help them take that next step and get from slam runner-up to slam champion. Those are so many questions. I know. Sorry. Feel free to edit your response accordingly. I think that they are two separate situations. Okay. Start start with one. Then. Yeah. So I don't. I I don't really. In my mind, I don't conflate them. Um. Starting with Halep, I think that her decision to split with Wim was an incredibly interesting one. I think that it does give some insight into just her mind, um, and what she wants. And while I do believe what she did in parts what she told the Romanian public I guess because it was just a Romanian talk show that she was on a few weeks ago that she said that one of the reasons for the split is that she wanted uh, a Romanian on her team and and we've heard that from other players before Anna Ivanovic for example who said that she found that working with another Serbian it helped just not just language wise but just you know Serbs are a unique being and it's helpful when you know you have somebody who understands why you are the way that you are so um, that I definitely understood a little bit, but, um, interestingly, I was talking to a Romanian reporter, um, just a couple of days ago and they were telling me that, that they were thinking or had some sort of speculation that perhaps Halep was none too pleased, um, that, uh, Fizette had given those comments to you, Ben, actually, oh boy. um, about how, uh, after, after she lost to Serena the second time in Singapore, that, that one quote of maybe next time we'll be a little smarter about the whole concept of whether to to let that uh, semifinal or sorry that that round robin match go or not. And the thought was, and this was purely a theory, but it was an intriguing one. I thought, which is why I'm bringing it up here, that that Halep just didn't like that that she's a fighter that she didn't want somebody who didn't believe in her, maybe didn't want somebody who was speaking to the press that openly, that it made a, her look bad, like all these sorts of things. And maybe that had something to do with it because. It seemed like otherwise they they got along and tactically things were right and he's a great coach so so that was a bit 
confusing. You know, Wim Fizet trivia, do you know that at some point after Halep had beaten Serena and Round Robin in Singapore, that Wim had won his last three matches, quote unquote, against Serena with three different players? Yeah. That's pretty impressive because he coached uh, Kleisters when she beat her in the 2009 US Open uh, semifinal and then coached Lisicki when Lisicki beat her Wimbledon. So Wim clearly was delivering the goods. I think I find it a little bit hard to fathom that one quote would derail a year-long partnership. But if that quote was symptom was just a small window into a, dis- a more fuller discussion that happened no, after the possible. match, you know what I mean? Like where maybe you yeah. know I don't know, yeah. but but it's an interesting thought because yeah, she 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 was not on the same page as Wim. Like what Wim told you is not what she was saying. Yeah. Although Wim said, Wim said, I think I tweeted when I talked to him pre-match. He wasn't saying that at all pre-match. Before the match, he wasn't telling Simona to, you know, conserve energy or definitely not tank before the match. Just afterwards, when she got bageled in the final set of the final by Serena, he was like, well, yeah, maybe afterwards. No, that's uh, what I mean. Yeah. Right. Anyway, on the Romanian side, we got a question from Tyler Green asking, how is coach? How is coach? Higher as expression of nationalism, a good thing for Simona Halep. And it's an interesting concept. I mean, I think especially for Simona, who her English is, is improving rapidly, but still improving. And even when she's talking, you get the sense that her English is not very natural. It's still a little bit of an effort for her. And so if she has to be more on in terms of speaking English with Fizet, who obviously doesn't speak Romanian, maybe there's something more just comfortable and relaxing about having someone you don't have to work as much for communication with. I don't know. And the way that it definitely worked out for Ivanovic this year, she finished in the top five, uh, which no one would have predicted at the end of 2013. Maybe it does work. Maybe it doesn't. Coaching is largely about comfort once your uh, technical side of the game is pretty shored up, which I think Simona's pretty much is. Yeah, it's, it, it's interesting. The whole going going native as a strategy. I think that also it can't be underestimated how important it is for Simona Halep to kind of retain her Romanian roots from just a purely, yeah, nationalistic perspective. I mean, she's, she's from all accounts, a pretty big deal back home. Mm-hmm. And Romanians have an incredible national pride. It's to the point of kind of similar to kind of experiencing, you know, what was going on with Serbia back in 2007, 2006, 2008, when, you know, these days, if I run into a Romanian person, like in the States or in Europe or whatever, they're like, oh, Simona Halep, you know, they know who she is for sure. So there there can be with that pressure to continue to appear Romanian. Like, don't worry, you guys. I have not westernized. I'm not, you know... A sellout. A sellout, exactly. Yeah. And and we've seen other tennis players really, you know, be damaged by that. They didn't mean to be. But, you know, like, Ivanovic has a very westernized reputation within Serbia based on her, her coaching, boyfriend, all that sort of stuff in the in the past, you know? And, yeah, I mean, so so I'm, I'm, I wouldn't be surprised if that wasn't a little bit of something that played into into Halep's mind because she went and hired Serana Cristea's old coach, Victor Ionita, I think is his last name. Mm-hmm. Yep. But then also took on Thomas Hogstedt as a consultant for the first three tournaments of the year, which to me is kind of weird because that's not really, like, much of a vote of confidence with your Romanian coach that you still hired like a consultant, a well-established tennis coach to come in um, for the beginning of the season. I thought that was quite curious, actually, because at the end of the day, Wim Fazette knows tennis and Simona Halep has got a good tennis IQ as well. Does her new coach have the same kind of level as as, uh, 
Fizette, I don't know. And, and did that then play into the idea of, well, okay, we'll make you feel a little bit more settled, Simona. We'll bring in Hogstedt as well. I don't know. It's interesting. It's interesting. And actually, it's funny you mentioned uh, the whole westernized thing and then Kirstea. Because Kirstea is somebody who I have actually have heard from Romanian reporters. is someone who has suffered a little bit domestically by being seen as someone who's a bit of leaving the country behind in terms of how she goes about her life being based in Las Vegas for a long time, being yeah. fairly commercial out elsewhere in the world. Not that it's something I don't like I'm saying, I'm not blaming her for that at all. But I'm saying that's it's, some perception I've heard of in Romania yeah, it, with Kirstea. And then that's just kind of how it is in a lot of kind of the you know, like we saw this with um, when after Petro won Wimbledon. Yeah. Right? With the tax stuff. Yep. About, you know, oh, does she pay her taxes in the check or does she, you know, pay them what is it, Monte Carlo? Yep. Yeah, Monte Carlo, what, you know, she, she really, you know, t- she turning her back on the Czech Republic and all this sort of stuff. I mean, it's it's just another wrinkle of kind of PR that a lot of these players specifically from the Eastern Eastern European countries have to deal with. It can really, you know, I've, I've definitely talked to players from that region where, where that has been the one thing that really weighs on them. And it makes them kind of have this very um, tense or conflicting relationship with you know, home. Like they want to go home at the same time. They feel like they're rejected a little bit. They read the tabloids. It's all negative. Um, yeah, they're called sellouts, too westernized, et cetera, et cetera. So it, it, it's quite interesting. I can't believe I had that converse, the whole westernized conversation without mentioning Sharapova because she's obviously the poster child for doing this. Well, and Lena. Yeah, true. Yeah, totally. Lena massively. Yeah. So, yeah. Although Lena at least returns home to China, which Sharapova does not do. Right. Really, with, with Russia. And there's this, there has been, I had this discussion with a number of different Japanese reporters in London about Kei Nishikori. Mm-hmm. And about, I was explaining to them, I was like, you guys realize, like, when I look at Kay, I see a Japanese guy. I don't see, like, to me, he's not Asian American. It's not like nothing about him reads American. No, like, when I talk to him, the things that he's into, he has the only interest he has in America to me, uh, from my sense, is to play tennis. That is it. And otherwise, and so, and I was asking them, how is he perceived back home? And they, for the most part, were saying that, like, yeah, I mean, they, they, people kind of think he's a, he's a little bit, you know, westernized, but they, they still, you know, there's not like a negativity associated with it as of right now. But, you know, that's something to watch going forward and something that I'm sure that, that Kaney Shikori is conscious of. Let's switch now to Bouchard, who we talked about a little bit at the beginning of this segment, who I don't think has really any national identity issues yet, so good for her. What do you make of the decision to split with Saviano? And uh, we got a question from, a couple questions about this, uh, from Ultimate Serena Williams fan, who asked about Bouchard. Um, will Bouchard be able to back up 2014 results? And from Patty Keck, who asked if Jeannie was injured, and if so, what is it? Or something else going on with her. Her on-court coaching sessions were tense. So let's, uh, I guess, eulogize the Bouchard-Saviano partnership if it if it is in fact dead and buried, as the press release sure made it sound. How how should their partnership be remembered, and what do you see going forward for her? I'm going to go second on this one. You go first, Ben. <laughs> okay. Uh, Jeannie and Saviano obviously had a great year results-wise. I mean, what she did in 2014 was this last year unbelievably ahead of schedule i mean her she was number 30 seed in australia didn't have the toughest draw but still got the semis backed that up again by making semis at the french and then finals wimbledon none of them like i said with toughest draws but what she was able to do backing that up consistently was huge and essentially getting into top five finals of wuhan uh, winning her first title in nuremberg is kind of a footnote making making singapore i mean her year was huge and she did it with this really sort of I think it's fair to say unsustainable pace in terms of how she played was 
a lot of based on being aggressive and being more tactics than on skill, I think is probably a way I would assess it. With Saviano, it seemed to be a clash of two very type A people, I guess, two big personalities that sort of managed to make it work. And for the most part, um, obviously they had their <laughs> blows with each other at the French Open, were caught on camera a couple times. But overall, I don't know, something about Genie's year did not seem like it was a uh, sustainable momentum. So it's, I think she did have to, was always going to have to reset a little bit. And the coaching change, I didn't entirely see coming, but I think that it will probably take her a while to get her acceleration back up to where she was in 2015. Yeah, that's my sense as well. I mean, I, I, I am not... I mean, put it this way, we're recording this on November 25th, mm-hmm. and Eugenie Bouchard is without, at least hasn't been announced, without management and without a coach. And while everybody else is is spent, has spent this week and the last week announcing coaching hires, she's now kind of like coming into the whole like, like, like coaching hiring carousel late. Yeah. Like there might have been great coaches out there, like a Hogstedt, for example, who exactly. I didn't even know was had split with, with or had stopped working with Sloan. So yeah, I mean, Hogstedt could have been on the table. Maybe you know if there was if she had known that this was as tenuous uh, that her kind of relationship with Saviano was as tenuous as it was. Maybe she she works a little harder to try and and figure out a, a, a way to make that happen and to to keep it going. Like maybe like okay okay you know but stay on for another three months until after the Aussie and then by then I'll find a new coach or, or yeah. something like that you know there's a lot of different stopgap measures now like I said we're we're just a, a less than a week away from December about a month away from the new season and she doesn't have a coach or management and that this is a problem you know I mean in a lot of ways like it's distracting it is it's distracting according to Stephanie Miles open court uh, who said that according to a source she's pulled out of the IPTL which she should because she needs to look for a coach now um, so I don't know why he'd fly to <laughs> busy it. writing a Craigslist ad uh, for a coach. Yeah, yeah, I don't know if I can't really meet up because I'm kind of in India or, or UAE or whatever team she was going to play for. She's so, going to travel a lot. Her schedule had her traveling quite a bit around Asia. Yeah, yeah. So a lot of that has to be rejiggered and it's going to have to be done effectively without full-time management at, at this point, I guess. I mean, if her if her mother is still handling everything, then then that's... Just a lot of that's a curveball is is just what it is and and so with all that in mind, yeah, it, it would be really surprising if she were to be able to come out of the gate um, in 2015 as strong as she did in 2014. That being said, I mean Jeannie had a season that continued to impress. Like even when you didn't think that she could do it to deliver results at the majors to win matches with the minimal margin with which she plays tennis. Yeah. She was able to prove you wrong. So she could do it again. I, but but logic seems to dictate no, that, that it's yeah. going to take a little while for things to kind of normalize next season. Matt Pushing Fool asks if we should expect similar results to next to, from this year for Jeannie, stay, i.e. staying top 10, or a Sloan-like drop slash rankings adjustment. Do you see Jeannie being top 10, end of 2015? It, you know, it's really tough, obviously, because we already have a situation where we've seen a Sloan-Stevens situation where she finished the season just outside the top 10 at number 11 yeah. last year. And I remember thinking at the time, being like, well, but okay, she got up to number 11 by basically doing awesome at the majors 
and not even like awesome, awesome, just like fine at the major second week and then not really performing outside of them. So if she just performs outside of them, then surely she can kind of keep and even if her performance at the majors drops a little bit, surely she can stay within, you know, top 15, maybe even break into top 10. And we saw what happened with Sloan. She's down to like number 20, I don't know, four or five, six, something. No, lower than that. I think she's in the 30s. I just know that she was like one spot ahead of Madison. Sloan is number 36 right now. Oh, wow. And she's one spot behind Varvara Levchenko. Oh, but she's still ahead of Madison? No, Madison's 30. Oh, when did all that happen? Because for a I while during, I kept... No, she didn't play at all in the fall. So. Yeah, no, but I remember checking that stat. Anyways, okay, so I'll go back and I'll... And well, Sloane has had just... injury problems yeah. recently, so... Yeah, no, absolutely, absolutely. But, um, yeah, so I would say that the same logic applies to Jeannie, which is that she got into the top seven by virtue of three incredible performances at the majors, two semifinals and a final, and really not a ton else. I mean, she made the final in, the Wuhan, in Wuhan, which was her first premier final, um, she won Nuremberg international level, but outside of that, she really didn't do a ton. So if she can, you know, improve her performance outside of the majors, then you have to think that she stays at least within the top twenty. I think um, top twenty. I think top twenty, but I would think for my yeah, my guess is closer to fifteen. I expect a, a bit 10. of a drop for sure. Yeah. I, I would be surprised if she's outside the top fifteen. Twenty would inside top twenty. I'd be like, yeah, okay. But outside of that, I, I'd be a little bit surprised. But we'll see. I mean, because getting back to kind of her and Saviano, I think that, you know, they had been working together since she was 12. She had obviously also received assistance from Tennis Canada. Um, Natalie Toziot was her full-time mm-hmm. coach last year. She fired and then she she paired up with Nick again more full-time as a traveling coach. And I think that at least with Saviano, there was a lot of trust there in that relationship from being kind of, you know, knowing her since she was 12 years old and um, things like that. And I think that if that sort of relationship doesn't work, I wonder, at least with Jeannie, with her personality, like whether or not when a new name steps in, unless they're like a super big name, brand name coach with a ton of like of success. I mean, she should be calling Wim Fazette right now. That's for sure. That's interesting. I thought that too. Yeah. But if it's just kind of like a regular coach, like someone who we kind of know, but not really, or maybe not know at all. I just wonder if she's going to like afford that person the respect, like if she's going to listen to them. Yeah. Because we already saw some pushback with Saviano and that was somebody who really, I think she, she did trust. And so, yeah, it's, it's definitely an interesting, interesting few months for, for Miss Bouchard. Indeed. Last question we're going to do today comes from our buddy Colette Lewis, who asks us, she would like to know which two players, one man, one woman, each of you enjoy watching with a going out of your way on, on a day off to watch definition of enjoyment uh, for technical, aesthetic, dramatic, or any other reason, uh, but mostly interested in game style you like to see. Have a great off season, she says. And likewise to you, Colette. You do men first for this. Sure. Then go to women. Okay, I'll start. My guy who I usually go out of my way to see at tournaments when I have time off is Alexander Dolgopolov who I just think his whole style and watching him, the way he sent a ball across a net is pretty remarkable and exciting and unpredictable. And when he is playing well, it's, I don't know. So something about it is so against the grain of what everyone else does that I really appreciate it. So I don't get a lot of time to go out there and sit and not cover tennis, but when I do, Doka Poloff playing is oftentimes an answer. And side note, second one for me is Tomic. (laughs) 
<laughs> you just love him so much. <laughs> he's so great. Tomic, because when Tomic is working, when playing really well, if he's ever like crushing somebody, I think it's amazing because he's completely tormenting them and they're so frustrated. And then when he's playing awful, that's remarkable in itself too. And his whole sort of droopy demeanor is great. And sidebar, one of my favorite matches ever was those two playing against each other, Doug Apoloff and Tomic at the Australian Open in 2012. Was pretty awesome. And look up the YouTube. It was. Highlights. It was a great match. It's such a great match. It was such a tennis nerd time. match. Such a tennis nerd match. Totally agree. So those are my guys. Dolgopolov, honorable mention. Tomic. Anything? One more. Just pure personality person. I mean, Fanini is embarrassing to admit. <laughs> enjoying. I feel bad about that, but I will if I can get like courtside for Fanini and sit and just listen more than watch to what he does. Even if it's in Italian most of the time, that's that's a train wreck of a thing to watch. And so I, I admit to tuning into that, even though I'm not proud. You, Courtney? Okay. Players that I go out of my way, I will just sit and watch. One is, and this will explain why I was generally pretty depressed all year, uh, Juan Martin Del Potro. Mm-hmm. I, anybody who listen to the podcast knows i love a forehand i love people who can hit the absolute shit out of the ball um and i love it even more when that stroke in and of itself is aesthetically pleasing and i get all of those things um from juan martin del potro i find him to be just an athletic freak of nature just to be able to play with the the, the speed at which he's able to play um some of the defense he can play is pretty remarkable but if you've ever gotten a chance to like sit in the lower bowl or sit courtside or just go to a practice session of Delpo's yeah. and Delpo just practices money. listen to him hit the ball. Like you don't even have to watch it. Just listen to the racket hit the ball. It's incredible. Um, and I love it. So, so yeah, I'm, I'm really looking forward to hopefully seeing him again back on the court in 2015. So he is one. The other will be uh, for me is, is K. Okay. I really like watching K play. You know, ideally I like watching him play when he's playing great. Um, because I think that's just a, a different look for men's tennis you know everybody calls him like the da- the baby davidenko or like whatever but yeah i just his speed is just uh remarkable so i really like watching him and then my third um wild card pick uh gael malfis i was gonna say him too yeah i, I will i will go out of my way to watch gael because i know that no matter what i get a show oh Either yeah it's an absolute disaster and i can entertain myself by talking about how absolutely crappy it is or it's an absolute like resplendent performance where even in which it, if it is you're seeing something like athletically incredible no matter what so so yeah uh gael would be my other one i feel that's totally true gael's somebody who i feel like you can kind of at least i think i've kind of figured out to know when he'll put on a show and when he won't like if he ever gets put on like i don't know court six at like indian wells they're probably not gonna be very good but if he he's really plays up to the stage up to the moment, and so if you ever he's ever like on one of those market court arena not before seven p.m. kind of matches, mm. then he really does well. Same with Grand Sand. That sort of environment for him is great. Yeah. He was he played the fifth rubber dead rubber against uh, Czech Republic and Davis Cup. People were like, this is so much more exciting to see Guy almost <laughs> a meaningless match than a meaningful one because he can have fun with it. And yeah, he gives great EXO. Uh, other person I will add because I'm thinking when they play doubles together in Australia is Dustin Brown, uh, is somebody who is a rare. So like he, he's not on tour level quite as consistently. He kind of hovers around hundred in the rankings, but um, yeah, I, I like his style a lot. It's similar, a little bit similar to Dolgopolov. Unpredictable uh, with how he plays. Yeah, unpredictable, kind of herky jerky, unconventional strokes, and yeah, his match against uh, 
Nadal at Hala this year, even though Nadal was <laughs> not really giving a whole lot of a shit about that match. It didn't seem right after winning the French. Um, that was pretty cool to see his style work so effectively. Yeah, women. Okay, women. Okay, well, this is easy for me. For technical and dramatic reasons, pretty obviously it's Monica Nicolescu for me. <laughs> Everything she does on a tennis court is remarkable and confounding and so unconventional paired with such drama. I don't know if anyone here has watched the Guangzhou final this year, which she won, but holy crap, <laughs> that was dramatic. It was her against Cornet. The two of them played at that same Australian Open, I think, 2012 Australian Open, they played a first-round match, or second round, Cornet and Nicolescu, and they were just both so agonized. I remember one of the matches back long ago that made me really like tennis was um, a match at the French Open between Hantikova and Harkle Road, which went like 9-7 in the third, and they were both crying. It was so great, because it was just like, Something about this was so painful to both of them. They weren't hurt or anything. They were just, like, agonized by their failure to win. <laughs> and completely sadistically, I guess, to me, I just thought that was amazing and wholly, hugely entertaining. Um, so Monica Nicolescu brings that sort of angst. But at the same time, her game is also so weird with her jumping forehand slice. Um, you don't see anything like that from anybody else that it's completely, completely different. And those two things uh, combine to make her very watchable uh aesthetic not maybe but in its own way i just think it's pretty cool that what monica necklace does is considered a valid form of tennis and hey, with the, it's Pica- with- it's picasso before people realize that picasso was high art it looks all messed up like maybe he like fell asleep and like let his <laughs> pe- his paintbrush keep going but yeah. it works that it's is true and, and now she's a top 50 player yeah. so good for her if you haven't seen her fix that watch Monica Nicolescu. I did a story about her at the U.S. Open, like, a few days after she got eliminated, which wasn't ideal, but it was still good to do it. And, yeah, so she is definitely my pick. You, Courtney? Uh, I have so many. Go Name them all. We got time. Okay. Time. Um, person that I will always watch play a match, uh, A, Petra Kvitova. You don't know what you're gonna get. And again, like I said, I like a Del big Petra. forehand. Del Petra. I like a big forehand. I like gasping when somebody swings their racket and hits a tennis ball. She always does it for me in the same way that Del Petra. She just scratches the same itch. So, uh, and unlike with Del Potro, she has kind of a bit of the lower the the roller coaster aspect to her. So it's always something. Uh, so, do you, but do you like the roller coaster? Do you like when she's completely terrible? Do you still get enjoyment out of that? I don't. But what is? But what is? I can't say that it's enjoyable. But what is compelling to me with her, and this kind of taps into the Malfice thing, is like when someone has so much innate talent and they can't unlock it. I find that fascinating. That's fair. That's so fair. it's still compelling. It's not like, and something compelling can be enjoyable even if it's viscerally repulsive <laughs> fair okay okay yeah uh so petra and a player who i will not watch practice but i will watch play matches and go out of my way to watch their matches actually is Rodvanska. okay i'm um, why no practice because her practices are boring but like in matches to watch her creativity when she's given something you know like you just kind of get the sense like i'm gonna tune into a red Vons- you know like how Rodvanska always gets hosed on the schedule like, she always gets put, like, first on. Like, she's, like, the top five player that you put first on at, like, she 11 o'clock. She never gets night matches. Right. She never yeah. gets night matches. Or she gets the second night match. I mean, she just gets, like, the crappy scheduling. So, usually, when she is playing, 
as it turns out, nothing else is really happening that I find particularly compelling anyway. So I kind of end up watching her quite a bit anyways, in hopes of seeing like the hot shot of the year. So that, and there's always going to be a chance of that. So I, I really like watching Aga play. I very much liked your suggestion that the WTA rename shot of the year after her someday. Oh my God. It's not even close. No brainer. No brainer. Not even close. Not even close. Have we talked about this before, I think, on the show, just to make it slightly different? Radvanska, underachiever, overachiever, what do you think? Oh, um, I think overachiever. Really? I think in, in, in this power game, for her to be a consistent top 10, top 5 player is pretty remarkable. I would probably agree with that, but I also think on some level, under situationally. I think she's had a lot of tournaments that she could have won and didn't. That's fair. Um, so, yeah, I'll say both. It's impressive that she got there, but once she got there, she missed a lot of chances. So the official NCR uh, uh, platform on the Redvanska issue is uh, Achiever. <laughs> <laughs> I should just ruin it. The Agnashika Redvanska Achiever. <laughs> we are what we thought you were. You are what you That'll work. That'll work. We've got our own award. Nothing's stopping us. That's true. We should come up with our own awards. Anyone who's really good at like soldering and wants to make us a plaque. That we can there you go. Something. Yeah, if we have we, some metal workers out there, or even woodworkers, I'm I'm down to go. You know, green. If you're really into whittling, is woodworking more green? I mean, I would think so. I would think that if you take like a piece of found wood and whittled it into something, that you're probably having a smaller carbon footprint than finding a piece of metal and soldering it. <laughs> so if you guys can find some sort of driftwood structure for us. That can fit in a carry-on bag for winner and us to carry the winner. We'll take it. That'd be great. Yep. yep. That's what we want for Christmas this year. Exactly. Speaking of holidays, Courtney, this is our Thanksgiving episode, which, like sitcoms, we have themed episodes around various times of year. This is Thanksgiving, and so we should once again recap what we are thankful for, aside from those aforementioned great players, focusing especially on the year 2014, I guess. We'll go back and forth, like a dinner table conversation. All right, the first person, the first thing that I'm thankful for is a person uh, (laughs) who I was reminded by my thankfulness for this week when he showed up to some sort of award ceremony in Australia wearing a purple suit is Nick Kyrgios. Nick Kyrgios, with relatively limited attendance at the tour in 2014, was an unbelievable injection of energy and occasional ridiculousness. So much ridiculousness! Let's remember, Nick Kyrgios got in a feud with Drake this year. (laughs) (laughs) That is a thing that happened. En route to making the semifinals, saving like eight match points against Gasquet, beating Rafa, he managed to get in a feud with Drake. No one else did that. I mean, maybe one other person thinking he maybe got in a feud with Drake. But mostly, it was Nick Kyrgios. And for him to have this sort of uninhibited peacocking, I'm going to call it, about himself, is such a necessary addition to the tour. You need somebody who's out there being flamboyant, being a stage presence. His match against Robredo at the US Open was great. I'm very thankful that he's there because this next wave of ATP, namely Ronich, Nishikori, Dimitrov, they're all fairly demure personalities. And <laughs> Nick Kyrgios is very much not that. So I will start with that. I am very thankful for 
Nick Karios, if he was a Thanksgiving dish, he'd be the sort of purplish bluish potatoes because he's a uh, purple. Because <laughs> he's purple. Because he's purple. I, I do agree with you though. Nick Karios is just. He's a gift, and he is a gift that's going to keep on giving. Like, he will bring us drama. He will bring us many interesting wins and amazing, inexplicable lightning in a bottle tennis. And then there's his Twitter account. And I, think he, and I think he knows he's a gift, which I also appreciate. Oh, sure. He owns his giftness. <laughs> yes. And he's like, his whole life is like, uh-huh, you're welcome. Yep. For so, sure. Thanks. I say thanks. He says you're welcome. Your turn, Courtney. I'm going to be a little bit more boring than Nick Kyrgios here. That's fine. But I do, I am going to have to say I'm very, very thankful for our respective number ones on the ATP and the WTA Tour, Novak Djokovic and Serena Williams. And here is why. For very different reasons, really. Um, Let's start with Serena. I think that, I think we were talking about this last week or or two weeks ago, Ben, that that she really, no matter what happens, she is the story throughout the she she sets the tone for the tour throughout the entire year and at the end i mean i know that she thinks her year was crap and is ready to close the books on this one and start anew in 2015 um but i think that it was an incredibly compelling year and it was just a compelling follow to figure out what was going on you know week to week tournament to tournament like What's your deal? What's going on? Where's your head at? Like, what is up with you? Like, why are you losing? And then you win, but then you lose. I can't get a read on you. And in that way, it was kind of exciting. It was it was a, a different, uh, like we were saying, you know, something can be compelling without necessarily being enjoyable. It wasn't fun watching Serena, you know, underperform in a lot of ways throughout. Um but at the same time, it was incredibly compelling. And it was, a, a, again, a reminder that, you know, she is human after two pretty much, like, in, I mean, insane years of tennis um, for her to deliver, uh, for her to kind of slip this year. I don't know. It, it that, made her compelling again. And that's her for the last 10 years. I feel like she's delivered yeah. some form of that balance of humanity. Maybe not. She was, I put 10 years. So right about when she started, uh, when she lost to... Uh, Penn at the French Open, I think she really became a lot more human in some ways. And since then, it's been quite the roller coaster ride and a lot of fun. Yep. So, so yep. So big ups and, and big uh, a turkey leg to you, Serena. And <laughs> the other turkey leg I will give to you, Novak Djokovic, who I think in a year that, that could have felt like a lot of chaos, um, given how everything kind of shook out. In, I mean, it was definitely a year that saw more parody than we've seen in years past. Um, across the board, uh, I just felt like Novak, to, for him to rise above it all, to have kind of a, a slow start to the season, then have that great hard court season, and an arm injury, and another tough loss to Nadal, and then really kind of like refocus, win the Wimbledon, which is the one that we kind of kind of wrote him off on in a lot of ways, and then obviously finish the year that the way that he did. I thought that. I don't know. Somehow I found it like really, really interesting to, to follow him, you know, adding Boris into the mix. And, you know, you were there, Ben, in, in London when everybody was basically trying to ask politely, like, no, but seriously, like, how did you make it work with Boris? Because we think that he, that guy's a bit of a joke sometimes. I yeah. mean, that was kind of the tone of the questions. Oh, yeah. Um, But uh, 
but yeah, he faced a lot of adversity this year and, and he still was able to rise above it all. And I will still maintain that he is incredibly underappreciated um, as, as the player and as the champion that he is. Could he be better? Would I what, love for him to be like pissed off all the time and be like, you know, yelling at crowds and all that sort of stuff like he did in, in London? It would be awesome. But I think that he does a pretty darn good job of being the best tennis player in the world right now. I would just ask for more dots. That's all I ask oh, so for. many dots. So many dots. So many dots. Uh, I totally agree with that. And I do think the press are, in a lot of ways, harder on Djokovic than any other international press. It's tougher on Djokovic than any other player. Not like domestically, like British press being tough on Murray. I think in terms of the world press, I think Djokovic gets a lot less uh, softness and accommodation yep. than the top guys. Um, my next thing goes off of sort of what you were saying about having Serena and Novak. I'm thankful that men and women both play tennis at relevant combined levels. I mean, it's a pretty unique phenomenon just stepping back for tennis to be co-ed. No other sport that's not like mostly Olympic centric, like swimming or figure skating is this way. And it's pretty cool to be able to speak about two different worlds and to be able to flip back and forth and sometimes compare and contrast and have these two worlds mix in their own ways. It's a whole different dimension that we would not have if we did a podcast about pretty much any other sport and just being fans of any other sport. I mean, no one else gets this sort of double dip of characters, of storylines, of drama, all that stuff. So I think that's pretty awesome and I'm thankful for it. I am incredibly thankful that our good friend Matt Cronin is back on tour yes. with us. Yes, um, I think that for those of you who – I think most people know this uh, already, but uh, Matt Cronin at Tennis Reporters um, on Twitter, freelance tennis writer, and really the man who in a lot of ways set up, I don't know, the model for what any freelance tennis writer um, to this day does. Um, just work hard, you know, respect the hustle – be good, get your contacts in place, all these sorts of things, and, and a tremendously nice guy and, and a great mentor in a lot of ways. Um, anyways, Matt was diagnosed with cancer after the Australian Open um, and was in off February, in yeah. February, yeah, and was off tour. Obviously, had to uh, go uh, go under the knife, and it was you know just we're all really worried for him. We missed him a lot at the two majors over the summer, but he made his return at the the U.S. Open, and he just finished a long stretch from. Uh, Singapore to Czech Republic for the French uh, for the Fed Cup final to uh, London for uh, the World Tour finals and is back home. But uh, yeah, it was just really cool to just have him back in the room. And I am incredibly thankful just to have his presence. And he's already back to scooping the both of us and breaking news every other day on Twitter. So, you know, the tennis uh, tennis is better for it. So welcome back, Matt completely agree and he's such such a value add and his presence was definitely missed uh, when he wasn't around uh this year so having him back is very cool that was a good one courtney i feel like bad that i didn't say that one. <laughs> um uh one more that i have i really like youtube which is more of a general life comment but it applies to tennis also youtube is really cool like you can type in videos and they're there and like for tennis you can type in I'm going to make something up. Hopefully it's there. Like, I don't know, Capriati, Venus, 2001, Miami. And suddenly it's there and you can watch that. And that's pretty cool. And something that no other generation has really been able to have. I can get any song you want in the world. I think YouTube's swell. That's about it. That was 
amazing. Um, <laughs> I, I am also going to say that I am thankful for kayak.com. <laughs> we're going to use internet services. Internet's the best. Internet is wonderful. Internet is everything. Internet is the reason why I am doing anything in my life at this point in time. But kayak.com is how I get from point A to point B. And it offers me amazing flights, such as the... It only costs fifteen hundred dollars. I'm going to throw this out there, and I didn't okay. and I didn't book it at the end of the day, but I was still tempted. The flight from San Francisco to Melbourne kayak offered me a flight that took me the opposite way around the globe. <laughs> so it was an Emirates flight yeah. that flew from San Francisco into uh, Abu Dhabi, uh, into Kuala Lumpur, maybe, and then into Melbourne, <laughs> and. So tempted, ended up not doing that, uh, went with a different flight. But the fact that you even offered it and it was there for me and if this, if it was so bad that, you know, that was going to be the flight that I had to take because it was cheap, I appreciate that. And I've taken a lot of really, 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 really crappy flights over the course of my time covering tennis and they've all been made possible by Kayak. And that doesn't sound like an endorsement, but trust me, it is because the travel budget is tight. So Did, if not for kayak put you through Brunei or something, once? it tried to put me through Brunei last year. Um, and yeah. I ended up not because it like all the, the flights to Melbourne, it keeps trying to pop up all these China Eastern China Southern yeah, yeah, yeah. flights, which are way cheap, but also long after I, I was on a bus with this FedEx pilot in Shanghai who was there to watch the masters. And it was a really long bus ride. It was like an hour and 15 because we were stuck in rush hour traffic. And he proceeded to regale me and my friend who's an AP reporter about all the reasons why flights in China basically crash like all the time. And ever since then, I've been very, very like mindful of which airlines I fly in when I'm in the Asia Pacific. So that's yeah. totally fair. <laughs> my two my two airline websites of choice are uh, Hitmonk. Chipmunk. Really... Oh yeah, Hitmonk. Hit, yeah, yeah. Hitmonk. Hit I don't like look... Hitmonk. Hitmonk's pretty good for me because uh, it does like it. It, the way it displays the results with the bars and things. I think it's cool, and the, and the app is pretty good. It has a little animation of the dancing chipmunk. Oh, the interface. The interface doing is the great, airplane. Yeah, it's, it's pretty good. Still... And then Cheapo Air is also good. I don't know if you ever used that one. I've that never used that one. I just oh, you should totally try it. It's pretty great. It has a terrible name, Cheapo Air, but the results are pretty good. Yeah, those are good things. And I'm thankful that Courtney has one more thing to say she's thankful for. How dare you pass the book, <laughs> sir? Oh, but I'm thankful for so many things because I'm such a positive person that, <laughs> like, literally, my cup overfloweth with scotch. My last thankful thing that I'm so thankful for it's a lot of thanks that wta pick oh my gosh yes that was so great it just brought me so much joy and the thing that made me love it so much in retrospect having now had time and distance is that i at in london like this might be the most tweeted tweet i have ever tweeted in my entire twitter Uh um is when i put that wta finals pick put it side by side with the uh ATP selfie that all the guys took and I was like different strokes for different folks anyways it was retweeted a ton Thomas Burdick stole the picture by the way Thomas he did you totally stole it I saw you like dude not cool I don't steal your stuff don't steal my stuff like what is that ATP University needs to teach people about copyright protection (laughs) um but anyways because you own the copyright because I own the copyright originals yeah (laughs) but I transformed it Ben 
There's a okay. transformative quality. Anyways. Speaking of photo stealing really quick before you go on, mm-hmm. Serena took one of my photos this year yes. and made it about her butt. That is which correct. I thought was a, yeah. Which I took the photo, obviously, because her butt looked ridiculous in it, too, in a good way. And I'm glad that she saw that and took it as her own. I was proud. It's good stuff. That she could, ha- that she could caption it bootylicious out of, off of my phone. <laughs> At least. Like an artist. Exactly. Um, so, yeah. but So, that picture got tweeted all the time. And, like, all these people were, like, like who were tweeting me back were, like, this is – these are all the reasons why I love the ATP 10,000 times more than the WTA. Like, whatever. And I kind of was, like, really confused. I was, like, really? Because that's, like, all the reasons why I love WTA. <laughs> like, because, like, they don't mask it. It's there. And, like, whatever. So then now having – now had Mirka Gate and – bathroom gate <laughs> bathroom gate do you want to explain that one briefly because i don't know if I oh yeah there was a re- report in the keep that stan got into like some beef with the french team outside of the bathroom after the davis cup final um because like the french took issue with a bunch of stuff that stan had said like that he uh, and then stan took issue apparently back in the day with like sanga back in january saying no i wouldn't trade my career for stan's career um this was after stan had won a slam and then stan when he beat sanga was like you know i was a stronger player i there's a reason why i'm number four like whatever anyways there was beef guillermo fees had to step in to separate it etc i love that apparently gasquet started the beef too i know oh oh Rick. Didn't win anything this week. Oh, just lost it everything. Oh, Rick. Oh, Rick. But yeah, so now having, you know, it's been like a f- couple of weeks and there are a couple of like very concrete examples of like the guys having beef in a way. And whereas like the girls like at the at the finals, like the, the, the conversation ever since has just been about how BFF Serena and like Caroline are. Oh, God, I yeah. don't know. I just I love that pick. I love that it tr- it distilled in something a truth a small truth of the wta but at the same time um in the big scheme of things wasn't like the truth of the wta so i don't know i love that pick it still makes me so happy your split screen by the way got retweeted 980 times yeah as of now that's what i mean good work yeah that was excessive you guys that was (laughs) excessive so now we're into the rant and rave corner but i feel like since we raved about a bunch of stuff is this kind of the rant section now this is a little bit of thanksgiving leftovers okay we're gonna, this is gonna be, oh, which gonna be I, re- reheated go which ahead non-ironically i love thanksgiving leftovers they're the best they're I so great love ranting about crap but ben you go first okay i have one quick rant it's something i've had for my whole life but i heard a really egregious example of it this week i really hate people i will say hate people i'll, I'll use that word people who give their kids terrible names. It's a big pet peeve of mine. And, like, names that are just, like, irresponsible and bad and ironic. Here's what I heard this week from someone, my mom's friend's cousin or something, I don't know, named, has two kids, uh, and the parents are, like, both half Japanese, I think, and half white. And the first kid is named Zen, Z-E-N, which, okay, weird, but okay. And their middle name is Danger. No! Zen Danger. And if someone, because there's probably only one person, so if someone knows Zen Danger, I'm talking about a real person here. So <laughs> apologies if the family's offended, but this is so obnoxious. <laughs> you cannot give your kid an illegal name where the only reason for it is an Austin Powers reference that Danger is my middle name. That is horrible. You can't do that to a child. A human being, you're giving them this shit for life. Oh, bad. 
and Zen isn't even a great first name you can cover with. Their second name, uh, the second kid, is named, uh, first name is Sho, S-H-O, which is apparently a fairly common Japanese name. Middle name, Time, Showtime. Shut up! Ugh! I expect better from Japanese people. I was pissed. I was that so pissed. That is the worst. It's awful. Like, how can you do this? Another thing that's bad is if you have a name that's a normal name, just spelled wrong for no reason. That's horrible to your child. You're like, oh, what's your name? Oh, my name is Martin with an E. The kids have to correct people. I'm using correct in quotation fingers for their entire life. Like Dwayne Wade. You know how Dwayne Wade spells his first name, Courtney? I know. A D-W-Y-A-N-E. So now, now, that, now that he's famous, sports writers have to misspell Dwayne constantly. That's just not how that word is spelled. Mm, don't like it. If I were commissioner of the world, when you're on your way out of the hospital, maternity ward, stop at a little desk, present your name, and it has to be approved before they unlock the doors. That's how I would do it. I mean, for example, I don't – but the thing is I find it a bit hypocritical for you to say that. Okay, why? Because I feel like your parents were going a little bit overboard spelling your name the way that it's spelled, but then when it's pronounced Roethlisberger, it doesn't work. That's true. That's true. So – and it's obnoxious when all the Steeler jerseys, like, they have to use a small font on the back to right. fit all my name in. Exactly. It's tough. it's tough. I don't know. I'm it's just tough. saying. The okay. Roethlisberger thing is tough. It's tough. It is your, it is your curse. Yeah, the problem is it used to be totally positive. Like, yeah. he was a pretty good college player at Miami, Ohio. For those he, of you who don't know, Ben gets a lot of hate tweets on Twitter because people think that he's Ben Roethlisberger, the quarterback of the uh, Pittsburgh Steelers. Who has a history of doing not-so-great things with women in bathrooms. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so before all that started, it was fine. And then when that started, it got pretty negative. And then on Twitter, I just want Ben Roethlisberger to join Twitter. Yeah. I just, so he would be on there, and obviously he never would with his life. But, so he would be on there, because when people type in Ben Roth, and they have to misspell it, first of all, because his name is R-O-E-T-H. Yeah. When they get to Ben Roth, mine's the first one that, t- that pops up, and they start typing anything they feel. Yeah. And so I can usually tell how the Steelers are doing based on their tweets <laughs> on a given Sunday. And I don't, I don't usually get praise when no. he does really well. He set records a couple weeks ago for, like, most yards in a game ever. And did I get any thanks for that? No. I get nothing from him. I've had real people think that I was him also, which is also disturbing. I was somewhere checking in. Uh, I was working somewhere for a few weeks a couple years ago. I had to present my driver's license every time for security. And the security guard legitimately thought I was Ben Roethlisberger. <laughs> And would like make references to last week's game and be like, just thought I was trying to keep a low profile <laughs> at the place. And I was like, it was in Washington, D.C., which is not where Ben Roethlisberger is from. <laughs> he lives in Pittsburgh. Yeah, it was confusing. So I'm not thankful for that. But I'm mostly angry that someone would name their kid Danger is my middle name. That's horrible. Danger is can't, my middle name. So cannot, terrible. Cannot, cannot condone that. Courtney, what's your rant? My rant is kind of a half rant, half rave. Go for it. Because it is so bad that it's good, but at the same time, it's so bad. Like, so bad. I listen to a podcast. It's a podcast that you would actually like, Ben, I think. Okay. Except for, although if you liked any of these these entries on this podcast, I might have to defriend you. <laughs> but it's a podcast called Coverville. Oh, I know Coverville. Yeah. So it's a podcast. Uh, I think it's a weekly podcast of covers. Uh, like, so usually each a podcast episode has a theme. And then the covers kind of go towards that theme. So episode 1054. It's which, been around for a while. Yes. I, was say. I know Coverville from when I was in college. Yeah. It's been around a long it's time. It's still going. Um, so this is the episode that was released last or two weeks ago, November 12th, I guess is it, it is. Um, 
It's episode number 1054 of Coverville, and it's called Nickelback and other bands you love to hate. And basically, this is the thing that I love about Coverville as a podcast, is that no matter what the theme is, and no matter how shitty the artists or the songs, he usually does a really good job of curating them to where it's a, a, a cover that's actually really good of a crappy song, you know? Or a crappy artist doing a really good cover of a good song or something. It was interesting. Yeah. yeah. These were horrible. All <laughs> eight, 19, 19 songs. 19 songs in this podcast. And they were the shittiest things I've ever heard. Absolute crap. And they, there was no redeeming quality. There was never a good cover. I mean, even if like all the songs are like totally crap, you can find a way to redeem a song. They did not redeem a single freaking song here. There is a, uh, let's see here. I'll just read off the tracks. First Please. track, How You Remind Me. Artist, oh. Nickelback. Artist, a Motown tribute to Nickelback. Oh Terrible. Title number two, Rockstar. Original artist, Nickelback. Artist, The Wurzels. Terrible. Who the worst? I don't know who that is. That sounds terrible, though. <laughs> you clearly don't. Uh, uh, yeah, Andy Roddick used to tweet about the worst all the time. Oh, that, that's fair. Uh, Saturday Night's All Right for Fighting, originally sung by Elton John. Not a terrible song. Covered by Nickelback. <laughs> Track number five. Saturday. Uh, Saturday. Exactly. Saturday. Yeah. Track number five. I Got a Feeling. Oh, God. Song, Black Eyed Peas. Covered by Nickelback. Covered by The Cleverlies. Which are a bluegrass, like an amateur bluegrass band. Seriously, cue it up. Absolutely the worst thing I've ever heard. Driver 8. Pretty good song. Sung by R.E.M. Covered by Hootie and the Blowfish. (laughs) What? I feel like Hootie gets a lot of... I feel like Hootie is... Don't. Don't even. Not not as bad as people making that. (laughs) I think that. I really do. I feel like uh, like I Only Want to Be With You. Solid 90s track. So solid. So solid. So sad. Track number 11, I Don't Want to Know, sung by Fleetwood Mac, covered by Goo Goo Dolls. That's weird. So bad. So, so bad. Uh, I'm going to finish this off with a couple here. I'm 18 by Alice Cooper. Great song. Legendary song. Love that song. Covered by Creed. (laughs) (laughs) Creed's pretty bad. Anyways, this episode, cue it up. It lasts for over an hour. There's not a single, because I don't even like the Alanis Morissette cover of My Humps, which is also on here. I don't like that at all. The whole thing is terrible. I can't believe I spent an hour of my life listening to it. Yet at the same time, I could not look away. So you're welcome. Cue it up. And maybe not before Thanksgiving, because you'll be in a really crappy mood the rest of the time. I'm really surprised that if you were going to rave, rant about a specific podcast episode that you didn't go with uh mr cumberbatch (laughs) that i'm saving as a rave okay and it's gonna be it's gonna take a little time but i don't and i haven't decided whether or not it's appropriate to tell people about (laughs) okay that's fair we'll leave you with that salute to the queen cumberbatch salute your queen salute your queen there you go uh so we'll we'll leave you with that corny out of all of those choices is any outroable for you anything you know what was the worst what was the worst of those or whatever just because i had to well there is one here of love will keep us together by captain and tenille covered i like covered by nickelback oh that sounds amazing (laughs) so that is an option for you as well why did they do that (laughs) i don't know but 
it's terrible. None of these are good. It's so bad. Level, I think the original of that song is like, okay. Anyway, speaking of Love Will Keep Us Together, I think that Chad Kroger and Avril broke up. Yes. Because they were married. Oh, that's such a necessary move by her. Talk about someone who needs a new coach for 2015. Jesus Christ. I'm not talking about Chad Kroger and Avril Lavigne on this podcast. Avril Lavigne is a great, great nope. artist nope. who I hope can spread her wings and fly nope. in 2015. Yep. Everything about her. So great. So nope. great. Don't try to fight it. Awesome. And you guys are awesome, too, for listening through that whole thing. Thank you guys for listening. Once again, if you want to follow along with us when you're not listening, you can do so by following us on Twitter at NCR underscore tennis. You can like us on Facebook, facebook.com slash NCR podcast. If you want to send us questions for the rest of the offseason, we'll be answering a lot more questions of yours. Uh, you can do so by sending us emails to no challenges remaining at gmail.com. And if you want to get episodes automatically delivered to you, you can subscribe to us on iTunes and leave us reviews there. And subscribe to us on any other podcast app of your choosing. Thank you guys for listening. Happy Turkey Day, folks. Gobble, gobble. What's your favorite Thanksgiving dish, Courtney? Oh, leave us with. Stuffing. What kind of stuffing? My sister makes this great um, sourdough bread and sausage and herb uh, stuffing that I think the, the, the recipe she found maybe on New York magazine or something like that. Anyway, it is the greatest thing ever. There's so much butter on it. It's so good. I highly recommend it. If you can find it, or if you want the recipe, tweet me, I'll send you the link. It is just a mind blower. It is my favorite thing. That's awesome. My favorite thing. I like all Thanksgiving. It's my favorite holiday. It's pretty great. Food wise. It's my favorite holiday. It's the best. I think it, it has like very little bullshit attached to it. Like most things, most holidays have some downside. I don't know what the downside of Thanksgiving is really. So I think it's pretty cool. My favorite is uh, just basic cranberry sauce. You have to leave it in the can shape when you take it out. Oh, for you sure. Can't move it. You have to leave it standing upright, can form, perfect. If you don't hear the pop when it slides out of the can, you've done something horribly it wrong. It needs to keep the ridges from the inside of the can. It needs all of that. Yeah. So good. No, we do the same. My sister used to make, like, insist on making cranberry sauce, you know, like, from actual cranberries. Yeah, we do that, And, like, too. we would do it, but the but we would also supplement that by, you know, m- putting out the canned ones. Everybody went to the canned jelly. Ocean <laughs> yeah. Spray. Ocean Spray can- cr- cranberry jelly is the best. It is so Why good. Why mess with perfection? Why do that? Yeah. Why would you? It makes no sense. There you go. So, thank you guys for doing that. Eat well. Eat lots of, eat lots of leftovers, too. And we'll see you guys soon. Bye. Bye. Love, love will keep us together. Think of me, babe, whenever some sweet talk guy comes slow. Sing it a song. Don't mess around, cause you gotta be strong. together